Support for On Being with Krista Tippett comes from the Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer envisions a world that embraces love as a guiding principle and animating force for our lives, a powerful love that helps us live in sacred relationship with ourselves, others, and the natural world. Learn more by visiting Fetzer.org. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being's Unheard Cuts. Up next, my unedited conversation with author Glennon Doyle and soccer star Abby Wambach. There is a shorter, produced version of this wherever you get your podcasts. It is just such an honor to have Krista Tippett here, who, of course, has not only with On Being, but also through her civil conversations work, really helped us look at what conversation and dialogue can look like. And um, when I was when I um, was talking to her just before, I, I let her know that in 2016, when her book came out, I, I think I bought it for every single person I knew. And thank you, Jackie, for introducing it to me. And um, our staff at Fidelity Charitable, and all of us um, would listen to her podcast on the way into work, and then we would meet in the morning to actually just have a moment of reflection to um, think about what she had shared with us. And in her book, I know um, she mentions, there was a quote that I loved, which was, our world is abundant with quiet, hidden lives of beauty and courage and goodness. And I think the gap between, she talks about the gap between um, who we are and who we want to be. Um, and I think this life of conversation that she has been living in, um, and breathing so beautifully is just a gift to all of us. So um, Krista, thank you for being here with us today. Thank you. Thank you. Isn't it good? <laughs> so I was at this gathering a year ago. Where was that? In New York? Yes. And it's so great to be back. Good. And I feel good. there's so many. I, 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 I feel very held in this room. And I, I was so impressed with this group and so many women I met, people whose faces I recognize again, people whose names I didn't learn. but. Um, it's wonderful to be here. It's wonderful to be here with two women I so admire and have just been looking for the right opportunity to, to, to get them on the show, and this just felt like it. Um, and I think there was going to be a big, uh, dazzling introduction of them because they are both forces of nature. Um, and I'm just, I don't want to spend a lot of time going through their exhaustive, exhaustive bio, so they're in the program. but. Um, Abby Wambach is an Olympian, Olympian champion, uh, soccer player, <laughs> World Cup <laughs> champion, uh, now retired from that, which we're going to get to that because that's kind of weird, a very bizarre idea. Yeah, 35 you are. And I know. <laughs> and um, you're starting a business and, uh, and a force in the world. Um, Glennon Doyle, uh, author, uh, I don't even know how to describe it. Um, one of the things you talk about now is yourself as a radical philanthropist, is that right? Yeah, I think my sister made that one up, oh, okay. but it sounds good. Yeah, yeah that's radical what we do. Radical philanthropist, I like it. Yeah. Okay, um, so we'll get to all of this. Um, I, um, I, I, if you listen to On Being, you know that I, I have a question that I begin most conversations with, and uh, it is a... I asked somebody to start talking about um, how they would begin to describe the religious or spiritual background of their childhood. And um, I wasn't going to do that today because we have a theme for this, for this gathering and for this hour, which is about courage. But then Abby and Glennon both told me that they're really disappointed because they were ready to answer this. We're totally religious. ready. Because we've been listening to her podcast <laughs> and, religiously well, and one of the things, I mean, that is actually a magical question for almost any gathering. Um, because everybody has a story. Uh, sometimes that story is about the absence rather than the presence of something. Um, but also I think that that part of our lives um, is where a lot of questions reside that we actually end up picking up and following all of our lives. So 
you can answer whatever question you want to. But what I, you know, what I think to to focus the lens on courage, um, and I think this is probably wrapped up in whatever is religious and spiritual in in that childhood and that earliest life. You know what you had in- learned and internalized about courage uh, in your childhood. Um, I think it's a really important question because there's so many different ways you can define courage. And for me, you know, there's no such thing as fearlessness. Courage is the presence of fear and going anyway. Mm. And I think for me as a little kid, I was the youngest of seven children. Um, and I'll kind of answer the question that I was prepared for. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I was an indoctrinated Catholic, and I grew up in a huge Irish Catholic family, um, the youngest and all very accomplished athletes and people, my brothers and sisters were, so I had a lot of living up to to do throughout my life, and I looked up to them, and I think that because of my need to impress and to get attention, um, I found myself being more courageous than maybe the average um, two-year-old. I was jumping off the diving board and riding the bicycle, even though I couldn't touch the pedals yet. I I (laughs) got myself on the bicycle seat and went down the driveway. And I I was not touching anything, I was just holding on. Um, I hope your mother wasn't watching. That didn't end well, (laughs) you can imagine. Um, And so I think that for me, I had a wonderful childhood in a lot of ways. You know, we can, we can decipher all the problems that happen in our childhood, but they, those problems are too part of what make us who we are. And um, the resilience that I learned, um, and through courage, I, I mean, I, I have had a lot of opportunity in my life to exude courage and to be on the national team and play for Team USA for so many years. Um, I had to shoulder a lot of responsibility for the the wins and the losses of our team. And I think that, you know, my younger years really helped me develop that muscle mm. of courage because it is a muscle. It's like any other thing that you have to actually work it out to um, grow it, uh, like running, like leg muscles. Courage is actually a muscle. Mm. Um, for me, I just recently heard this definition of courage that resonated with me so much that I brought it to the dinner table with my family and made everyone listen to it. I do that all the time, actually. But It's awesome. Um, yeah, my family loves reading passages with me at dinner. Um, <laughs> the easel comes out. The easel comes out. We live each. It's so much fun no to live in our family. Um, but it just said, um, courage is not being afraid of yourself. And I resonated with that so deeply because I feel like my entire life has been a journey to try to stop trusting every other voice on earth and start getting still enough to listen for myself, you know? I think I lost that really early. Um, And the more women I go around and talk to, the more I hear repeated, you know, I feel lost. I feel, it's like at some point we learn how to please and we forget how to know. Um, and I, you know, I had, I had this experience with my girls. We have two daughters and we had an experience where they were getting their ears pierced, right? They wanted to get their ears pierced. So we took them to the mall and one of them decided, yes, I'm going to do it. And the other one decided, no, I'm not going to do it. And all the people watching in the ear pagoda or wherever we were, (laughs) they looked at the little one who was ready to go, you know, and they were like, you're so brave. And then they looked at the older one, and they were like, come on, be brave. And I was so pissed, but I couldn't figure out why, you know? And what I realized was they were both being so brave. Like, the little one who's decided to be fierce in the moment, and her inner voice said, yes, piercing. She'll probably (laughs) head to touch this one. I'll have 60 piercings by the time she's 14. (laughs) And then the older one whose Mm. inner voice said, no, I am not ready for that. Yeah. But for some reason in our culture, we decide if you just jump and do it, that's brave. And if you don't, you should be braver. But what courage to me is, is getting still enough in every single moment and deciding what the hell it is that you want to do. 
right? What your self says to you. And sometimes the bravest thing to do, the bravest people are the ones who say something different than what everybody else is cheering them on to do, mm -hmm. right? So the reason I brought the quote to the dinner table was that <laughs> I really wanted to encourage the idea that being brave has nothing to do with outer circumstances and has everything I to do with getting still enough to hear your own voice and do in the outer world whatever it is in your inner world um, that your deepest wisdom is leading you mm -hmm. to do. And it's taken me, I'm 42 now, and I'm just starting to figure that out. Mm -hmm. um, so Glennon, um, your, let me just say one thing. I think we're going to kind of leap forward in this conversation and not go over a lot of the stories that, for both of you, that are where a lot of interviews with you happen because you both have such fascinating stories. Um, you know, like my teenage daughter would say, it's so epic, right? You both have epic stories. <laughs> um, but we, I want to kind of jump into the meat. And I just want to say, if you want to hear these two stories, they've written gorgeous books. But so... Um, and you're, you're out there. Um, sometimes the way people will describe your body of work or, or kind of your career, also you started out as a blogger. Um, you still are a blogger. Um, but there are many, some people will say you're um, uh, you know, a master of the tell-all form. Mm. And really that's many forms. Mm -hmm. And it ranges from the serious to the superficial. Mm -hmm. So what I think... Um, it seems to me that what that means when it comes to you um, is in the origin story of your blog and its success. So mm. I kind of just want to go there. So, so here's where we're going to comp compress a lot of epic history into it. Mother's Day 2002, you find out you're pregnant. Mm -hmm. And you, um, you, know, you had been living with bulimia, with addiction. Um, you were, I, were you... Al you were, al were you drunk at, on that day that you... All the days. Okay, that day you found you were pregnant, you'd been yeah. in a mental hospital. I mean, you'd been this very high-functioning, popular, successful girl, but with this, these incredible demons. Yes. Um, you find yourself pregnant, and that is just this huge turning point, mm -hmm. because you decide to have the baby, mm -hmm. and you actually marry the father, who you didn't really know very well mm -hmm. at all. Um, and... I was so struck by this, um, that AA, you, and you decided you had to get into recovery, mm -hmm. and it was such a revelation, and you wrote somewhere that you thought to yourself, why is it that we can only be this honest in little dark basements of churches one hour a week? <laughs> what if we could actually be fully human and honest with each other in real life? So you started getting up, and I again, this is in, in the... I'm telling your story, but just to get us to other places. Getting up early and writing in that voice that spoke at AA meetings. Mm -hmm. And um, so I think, you know, blogging is kind of new, right? The internet is mm -hmm. in its infancy compared to now. And you just say, you know, one day you logged onto Facebook, which was kind of new, and noticed that your friends were writing lists called 25 Things About Me, mm -hmm. and you contributed your own. And you <laughs> definitely add into the genre. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So they were, I don't know if you remember, but a decade ago maybe they were doing this list of 25 things about yourself. And I had been, um, you know, I was freshly sober. I was just dripping with babies. I think I had three under the age of five at that point. And um, really felt like a lot of women do at that time, pretty isolated and lonely, overwhelmed and underwhelmed at the same time. You know, everything was like too much and not enough. And, um, and I logged, and I was just desperate to just tell the truth somewhere because this was before, you know, the age of vulnerability where everyone was still acting perfect all the time. Um, now it's like how jacked up we all are, you know? It's like a competition to see who's the hottest mess, but before it was like Pinterest world, you know? And, um, and so I just remember feeling so desperate for somewhere to tell the truth. So that list, I logged on. I didn't read anyone else's lists. I just thought, saw people are writing lists about themselves, right? So I wrote my list and posted it and walked away and came back to my computer. And there were like 40 emails in my Okay, inbox. but can I read number five? Oh, God. I am a recovering alcoholic and bulimic, bulimic, seven years sober. Sometimes I miss excessive booze and food. In the same indescribable way, you can miss someone who abused you and repeatedly left you for dead. Truth. <laughs> Except that my friend Lisa's number six was, my favorite snack food is hummus. Yeah. <laughs> so I was like, wow. 
doing that here. <laughs> right? But that was also the moment when I got brave and I wanted to die. But then when I got brave enough started to start reading those emails and every single one of them was just a different version of, oh my God, me too. Me too, me too. And I thought, and they were from people I'd known my whole life, right? But we'd never really known each other because we'd been too busy pretending that everything was so perfect and shiny. And, you know, because for some reason, if we admit or talk to each other about life and relationships and work and all of this being hard, then it seems like some kind of admission of failure, which is so ridiculous. Because life and relationships and faith and work and all these are hardest for the people who are doing them right, right? Who are showing up and taking big risks and falling and trying again. So, um, you know, sometimes it feels like we're keeping the things from each other that are the very things that are so heavy that we're supposed to be carrying them with each other. Mm. Right? So, I mean, when people say tell all, yeah. all that means to me is I just don't have any shame, you know, because what I learned about my recovery through um, getting so sober is that it's not at all the pain of life or the difficulty of life. I still find life extremely difficult. Um, but it's not that that takes us out of the game, right? It's the shame about the difficulty that takes us out of the game. So I think probably what they mean is that I write about things that maybe other people don't write about all the time, but that's because it's a spiritual practice for me. The second I start to feel anything that has a hint of shame into, in it, I always think of that Maya Angelou quote that's, you know, I am human, so nothing human can be foreign to me, right? I get it out, it's like scary and inside and dark, but once I get it out and get light on it, it just shrinks. It's not so scary anymore. A bunch of people say me too, and I'm like, oh, right, I'm not bad, I'm just human. And we get on with it. So yeah, I've just tried to turn my entire life into one giant AA meeting. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> um. I actually just want to read this before we move on, and because Abby, your story also has different contours of this struggle to own the contradictions, also in your case, between the fantasy other people have of one's life and the reality of a life. And but, Glennon, you know, you, I think would it would it be right to say monastery, which is your is that how you say it? Monastery. That's how, that's like how I always said it. I know. Mm -hmm. And then I hear people saying. Mana ma mastery. Oh, that's my favorite. And I favorite. think they're not getting it. They're no. not getting it. Okay, ma mastery. Well, on the um, Today Show, they said, this is ma mastery. Right, She's mastering right, the mom. Right. Which is like the opposite of everything I, I stand for. Right? I know. <laughs> I was like, no. I, that's what I just, I, just, I was yeah. so sure. So um, I think, was it in 2011, the Don't Carpe Diem post that mm. kind of had four million shares and, mm -hmm. and really took off in a new way? And I just want to read this briefly because it's just very beautiful and a lot of us have been here. Every evening, Craig walks through the door, that was your husband at the time, smiles hopefully and says, how was your day? This question is like a spotlight pointed directly at the chasm between his experience of a day and my experience of a day. How was my day? I look down at my spaghetti-stained pajama top, unwashed hair, and gorgeous baby on my hip, and I want to say, how was my day? It was a lifetime. It was the best of times and the worst of times. <laughs> I was both lonely and never alone. I was simultaneously bored out of my skull and completely overwhelmed. I was saturated with touch, desperate to get the baby off of me, and the second I put her down, I yearned to smell her sweet skin again. This day required more than I'm physically and emotionally capable of while requiring nothing from my brain. I had thoughts today, ideas, real things to say, and no one to hear them. Um, Everyone's like, I can't imagine that she's divorced now. <laughs> <laughs> Lovely to live with. <laughs> um, so, Abby, you were, I mean, you're a two time Olympic gold medalist, a women's World Cup champion, FIFA World Player of the Year, on Time's one list of 100 most influential people, praised by President Obama at the White House. Um, you, your book that you published, when did you publish that? Two, in the last 2016. year? 2016. 2016. It's called Forward. And uh, 
And there's a line in there where you're describing just like two weeks after your retirement, which was just the height of being celebrated. And you have a sentence in there, you're speaking to yourself, you are barely brave enough to leave your hotel room. Yep. You know, <clears throat> when you spend over a decade in, in a spotlight in one way or another, um, our national team gained popularity uh, in 1999 when our team won the World Cup and Brandi Chastain ripped off her jersey. I wasn't on the team then, but I got there a few, a few years later. Uh, won a couple Olympic gold medals and then finished off my career um, winning the, the World Cup in 2015 and I retired a few months later. And so you have certain levels, you know, I had certain levels inside of me that I could go and train and, and um, I can compartmentalize the fame. Um, you know, I always said that we had like a perfect amount of fame on the women's national team because it was not like a celebrity where people were following us with mm -hmm. cameras. Um, we were revered and respected. Um, and the downside is we, we didn't get paid enough to deal with it. <laughs> you know, I'd be like, you know, we could have gotten paid more, but then maybe if we gotten paid more, we would have been too famous. Um, but I just remember that time being so exhausted. Uh, a couple weeks after my retirement, I was going on kind of a media tour uh, after the whole thing. And I just felt like for once in my life, and I was really struggling at the time, I was like really deep into my own addiction. And um, I was really living a hidden life behind that hotel room door because I was traveling all the time. And uh, I just remember feeling like if people only knew that actually I am terrified to walk outside of this hotel room and somehow I was able to do it, somehow I was able to survive. My agent still can't believe that the amount of um, traveling I had to do during that time that I was able to stand up and knowing how I was feeling after I turned in the manuscript of this book, he was like, I didn't know you were feeling any mm. of this stuff. You know, and and you're out there making presentations and being received as a role model and a mentor, right? Yeah, and a, and hero. a hero, and a hero, right? Yeah. And so that's for me. There, that's what the 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 irony was. Is I just was internally feeling so mm -hmm. scared and lost. Um, you know, when you have created this identity, I had this identity of myself as a soccer player, and now this identity was being completely shifted, and I didn't know what the hell to do. I found myself on a, on a stage um, months after my retirement next to Kobe Bryant and Peyton Manning. They were giving me this Icon Award. Um, was that I, ESPN, right? Yeah, 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 for the ESPYs. And I was so happy to be there and grateful and everything. And, and as like we turned and walked off stage, I kind of looked at both of those guys and I thought, wow, all three of us are walking into very different retirements. Yeah. And... At that point, well, and to be clear, like, and one of the ways you describe that is that they they were walking away with fortunes, of course. And you, your life of hustling was just beginning. Yeah, and I think that that for me, that's when the rage started to like come to the surface. And I, yeah, courage. Courage. It's always got rage in it. Yeah. <laughs> the rage started to come to the surface for me, and I think that. I started to become very aware of how long I'd been on the team, um, how I was just, I was kind of just doing, I was the one person that was getting invited to the table. I, I mm -hmm. was the person in the boardrooms. I was the person at the head of our team. I was leading our team. And here I am now walking away from this team and I am now worried about how I'm gonna pay my mortgage. Yeah. You know, Peyton and Kobe have no worries about that at all. Yeah. Um, it would be interesting to find the actual stat versus how much they've made in percentage-wise, and I'm sure it's less than like 1% of what Kobe and Peyton made. Don't quote me on that, but I think it's probably pretty close. Yeah. And, you know, I think that we all have stuff that we're dealing with internally, and part of the reason why I was struggling so much at the time is my insides weren't matching my outsides. I became a version, a vision of myself that... Um, the shame started to build up and, and as soon as I started to actually acknowledge this rage 
that every woman in this room hopefully has felt and feels about being treated less than just because we have a vagina, that for me, to acknowledge the rage, to acknowledge the feelings of marginalization and um, imposter syndrome, all of the things, I just have now spent the, the last couple of years of my life trying to figure out a plan how to solve for X, how to solve for this rage um, that all of us women are feeling. Mm -hmm. And in, in the book you wrote, you, um, the, the chapters um, are all um, ways people had seen you, right? Mm -hmm. And categories you'd Labels, sometimes yeah. walked into willingly, and, and, and sometimes that had been an armor, right? So um, it was everything from, um, you know, or how you'd seen yourself. It would you know, be fraud, tomboy, rebel, teammate, lesbian, manic, depressive, captain, leader, romantic, hero, addict, failure. And then the last chapter is human. Mm. Um, somewhere you said I, you had created yourself. All these categories that were both generated from you and generated externally helped create you, but shut you off from becoming human, fully human. Glennon has said this a lot. Um, you know, we're all kind of like Russian nesting dolls. Sorry if I'm stealing your stuff. You always do. Sorry. <laughs> At least I'm giving you credit yeah, this time. Yeah, it's true. It's true. Hey, I, do you all know that these two are married? I'm not sure we oh, said yeah. that. Yeah, that would have been in the in the off <laughs> the, the video. top. She's we'll my wife. We'll get to that, but I, I thought I'm her wife. Yeah. It's awesome. Um, so we're all kind of like Russian nesting dolls, and as we get older, we kind of keep putting on all of these t costumes, and that's what I thought for me growing up. That's what I thought I had to do to mature, to age, to get wisdom, is to put on all these different costumes and see which one fit. And I think that now having gone through a lot of my life, and granted I'm still fairly young at 38, but um, I realized that the more you can actually take those costumes off and get down to that little, small, immobile Russian nesting doll, that is like who you are your true, true self. That is like the humanity of all of us. And we all are in there. And we all put this stuff on externally um, for fear of and the labeling and keeping everything, everybody separate uh, down here is what people choose to do to stay in power. Um, you know, and I just think that as I've gotten older, I've become a lot more aware of what is true to me and what I want my life to look like. Um, and labels are just bullshit. Sorry, am I allowed to do that in this? Yeah, well, we might have to. <laughs> it's public radio, you I don't can, think I yeah, am. Yeah, we have to bleep you, but it's okay. It makes it cooler, I think. So I'm, cool. I'm kind That's of excited now when we have to bleep because it makes us feel like a real show. Um, um, <laughs> I, this is very random, but I just want to share it because when I was reading, I was thinking, yeah, he ended with human, which seems like the simplest or not most, most elemental thing of all, but is really the work of a lifetime. Right? I was thinking about there's this, um, you know, when I studied theology, Paul Tillich wrote The Courage to Be, and he's called an existentialist theologian. And, and I read it when I was older. Because I was, I was emphasized when I thought of that to be, that being. But the courage, the book is actually about how the courage it takes, right? The courage mm -hmm. is the work. Mm. Um, so there's your little theology for today. <laughs> um, okay, so... Yeah, big life turning. I kept thinking of what's the language around inflection point, but really more like earthquake, I think, where your stories converge. Um, and Glennon, you left a marriage. You had just written a book about repairing. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's been a doozy, you guys. <laughs> so the two of you met and married, and here's me rushing through epic history again, and are now co-parenting your three children together and actually co-parenting together with their father yeah. in a really modern family. I mean, um, we don't, like, live in the same house. It's not that modern. You don't modern. live in the same house, no. <laughs> 
but you're working together. Right, yes. Um, also, there's been, um, a, there's really been an evolution of momastery, mm-hmm. um, which I want to talk about because it's very relevant to what this room, this gathering is about. Um, now, which came first, the Compassion Collective or the Love Flash Mobs? <laughs> well, the Love Flash Mobs. Okay. Yeah, so that started a long time ago. And the Compassion Collective is really just a, a group of, of writers who right. are my friends who joined together to help the... With the Love Flash Mobs. Nonprofit. So talk about what that is and mm-hmm. how, yeah, how that developed. Well, I mean, I would say when I, I became a writer and an artist and I saw my job as, you know, I think a writer is just, her job is to just pay close attention, you know, just look closely at people. And I think when you look closely at people, you end up loving them, you know, that's just what happens over and over again. So I fell in love with this little community that I was um, speaking to and hearing from every day online. And the way it started is one day I was um, feeling really grateful. And I, at the time I was using my feelings as energies. I think this is something my therapist had suggested. (laughs) And um, I was feeling all this gratitude. I said, I'm going to do something with this gratitude. So I said, the first email that I open up, if it's a request, I'm going to grant that request because people Mm. were always asking me for things. So I opened my email and it was a letter, a beautiful letter from this woman who who ran a um, home for teenage um, homeless mothers in Pennsylvania. And she said, she was, just, she was just sharing her heart. She said, this little girl, 14-year-old girl came to our home last night holding a baby and I had to turn her away because we didn't have the funding for her and she was heartbroken. So I said, oh my God, that's it. So I actually called this woman in the email and said, I want to pay for that um, girl to come into your home. What do you need? And she said, we need $80,000. And I said, well, then we need another plan. That's going to be a hard credit card charge to hide from my husband. So, um, so, so it's despondent because I knew I was supposed to do this. Like this was in the cards, and um, that's when I remembered I had this community of women online who would feel the exact same way as I did about the situation, and that my job was to be a writer. Right, my job was not to fix everything, but to tell the story of this girl, right? Because I always thought, you know, the the most revolutionary thing we can do is just introduce people to each other. So I called the the woman back and we stayed up like all night writing this beautiful essay with pictures and all the things. And I said, we're gonna start something this, tomorrow I'm gonna post the story online and we're gonna call it a a love flash mob because at the time I was obsessed with flash mobs. Do you guys remember those amazing? Yeah, they kind of came and went. Right, so that one has like 79 million views and I am 78 million of those views. (laughs) Because it's just so gorgeous, you know? It's like a metaphor for life. It's like we all just are walking around like zombies disconnected from each other and then suddenly somebody, some fool starts dancing and then some other fool like starts dancing too and knows the, the, the moves. It's almost like there's some kind of choreography that we all know and then everybody's dancing. So the beauty of the Love Flash Mob was, I'm going to open up the giving, but nobody's allowed to give more than $25. Because the point was not just to raise the money, but the point was to create a community of givers. Right? And I had to fix what was the problem. We know we have the feeling. We want to help. But what happens between that feeling and just forget it? Right? And what happens, I think, in that space is, is, is uh, confusion. How much should I give? Will it matter? Who do I have to check with? You know, all the set, oh, I'll do it later. And so I needed to make it so that, just to smush that time together so that people didn't drop off and also to make somebody for whom $25 is a big deal feel as invested and as important as somebody for whom that was nothing, right? So fast forward seven hours later, we had like $130,000, right? So, and that was just the first day. So now years later, I mean, the Compassion Collective joined in last year. We did... I love flash mob for uh, for Syrian refugees, and I think that one we was like 1.5 million dollars in 20 done, like, hours. Unaccompanied children, yeah. child refugees. Yeah. So I think at this point, it, this is a grassroots movement. Love flash mobs happen every once in a while. I think we're just about to hit 15 million dollars, and our average donation is 31 dollars. Um, so you know, my journey has been, you know, from artist to, I guess, what you'd say philanthropy, right? This idea mm-hmm. that we love people, we want to help people, and then somewhere in my journey, 
together Rising started, which is my nonprofit, and um, we were my team and I were spending just day and night just help you know emails and helping and helping and pulling people pulling people. We'd sit down every once in a while. We'd say, "What is going on? Like I believe that people are doing the best they can. Why are all these people suffering?" Right? All these mm -hmm. people who are working their butts off to put food on the table for their family and they can't make ends meet. What's going on? One day I read this quote that said, um, you can only pull people out of the river for so long until you have to look upriver to find out who's pushing them in. Yeah. Right? So that is when I added activist to my resume, yeah. right? Philanthropy is one thing, and pulling people out of the water is one thing. But at some point, we have to ask ourselves, what are the institutions and powers that are causing all of these children to not be able to have their heat turned on? Mm -hmm. What are the institutions that are causing all of these dads to be um, pulled out uh, to jail for the most minor infractions, right? What are the institutions and powers that be that are causing so many freaking people to be addicted to opioids? Mm -hmm. And on and on and on and on, right? What are the institutions that are causing all of these LGBTQ kids to be kicked out of their homes at such record numbers that the LGBT teen community is the number one community of um, homeless kids in the nation now? Yeah. Where does that start? Right? We have to go up river. We're going to do and both all the time. Right? We're going to pull people out of the river, but we sure as hell are going to be up river, um, challenging power, and finding out who are the people that are benefiting from the people going in the river. Because also, it's very convenient for power to have women only pulling people out of the river. Yeah. yeah. Right? It's actually a really good freaking system for them. Because then they continue with all of the inequality, and they don't have to even deal with the drowning people. Because we're over here like, it's all right, we got it. Right? So I just want to spend the rest of my life pulling people out of the river and also just creating living hell for the people that are pushing them. <laughs> this is okay. a day in the life of mine. Uh, <laughs> awesome. This is why I'm so tired by 8 a.m. Every day I wake her up and I'm like, coffee and revolution, this patriarchy is not going to smash itself. Get up. Okay. She's, we're not joking. So let's, that's in the room. Um, and what I also want to just pick up on, just moving back a little bit, is um, what you're doing by saying you can only give $25 is also uh, helping people not feel paralyzed. There's, because I remember it's, year, years ago I interviewed Joan Halifax, a wonderful Buddhist teacher, and she talked about how she didn't think, you know, she didn't like this language of compassion fatigue. Mm -hmm. um, although it's certainly a, tr I mean, we know, we all know what she's talking about. Um, but she said, she said, she said, she thought there's such a thing as pathological empathy, because mm. in fact we get surrounded and inundated and bombarded by images that break our hearts. Um, so many of us, I think, and it's not that we don't care, it's that, we, that we're overwhelmed by how much we care and we have no idea what we can do to make it better. Mm -hmm. So that's also what you're describing, and then, and then okay, so, but, but we do need a different kind of courage that we don't possess and that our public life doesn't nourish right now to hold that question and walk with it. Um, and to turn heartbreak into action. Yeah. It, there's something you um, on the day that the um, I read uh, the um, on the day uh, around the the White House's Muslim travel ban because you've also gotten involved. You got really involved, and in the Compassion Collective got involved in the children being separated from their families at the border. Yes. Um, but I was really struck by I don't can't remember where I read this. Somebody was writing about you, and so this is the way we do things, right? In it. She sits cross-legged on her kitchen floor, a corona of golden curls surrounding her head. This is what we do with women who are stepping in. And you said, but these, this is so powerful, issues like refugee care can seem so overwhelming. You, you were saying this to your people, which is a million people or so. But we're going to do this thing that I learned when I first got sober. We're just going to do the next right thing together. 
And that's what we're not stopping to just say to ourselves and say to each other. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think it, this, this idea of compassion fatigue or, or despair, you know, what I really notice is that the people who complain about despair so much are the people who aren't doing anything. Mm-hmm. Because what I feel is brokenhearted a lot of the time, but when I do a little thing, when I just do something, there's something else that happens. It's not despair. I don't know. It's a little bit of hope. Um, it's that idea of like, we cannot keep the fact that we can't do everything to keep us from doing something. Mm-hmm. You know, you do that little thing and then you feel more awake and alive and connected. Um, you know, so many people at the time were saying, you know, this the beautiful Mr. Rogers. Mr. Rogers, have you guys seen the documentary? Oh my God. Yeah, I started watching it on the plane. It was, oh, it's God. not a good thing to watch on the plane. You don't want to cry on the I plane. Know. <laughs> and he said, you know, his mother used to say when tragedy struck to look for the helpers. And, you know, what we say to our kids is, no, 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 that's not good enough anymore. You have to become the helpers, right? We have to be, you know, there's, all, there's this side and there's this side sometimes, and we just want to be the first responders. We want to be the people that show up and say, here we are. What can we do? And there's something that I see that happens to people who just join in and just give a little bit and just do that next right thing instead of nothing. Whatever despair is, it's not there with them. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a way of keeping hope alive. There's this language you've used, um, activism as self-care, yeah. which is, has a lot of layers to it. Mm-hmm. And I also want to ask you, Abby, if that rings true for you, that language of activism as self-care. Yeah, I mean, Glenn and I talk a lot about this notion of despair. Sometimes she says it to our 10-year-old who has fallen down in a soccer game. Um, she'll say, no time for despair. <laughs> and I look at her, I'm like, what kind of language are you using? No. You said, this is a soccer game, not a poetry reading. Yeah. <laughs> Trying to be nice about it. Um, but, but this notion of despair, the interesting part that when we're talking about activism and giving and philanthropy, Despair gets negated as soon as you go into action. Mm-hmm. So um, Glennon, her action is to write an essay, put it up, create a love flash mob. I mean, when um, the kids were getting pulled away from, migrant kids were getting pulled away from their, their parents and putting in, in detention centers, I think it was Labor Day or some sort of holiday that she called her team and everybody dropped everything. One was away, she flew home, other has a family. And her ability for me and and what I have found to be so rewarding is to learn about um, not just the philanthropy world, but what it means to actually lead by example and lead with kind of the integrity that people will follow you. That is, there, there are so many organizations and nonprofits in the world. And Glennon and her philosophy is if she can just start to go into action and to create a groundswell, build certain kind of coffers up $5 at a time. My sister, she's a working mother. She's got two kids and is a teacher and lives on a teacher's salary, and she doesn't have enough money to be giving, but she has to do something. So she gives $5 a month. Best. That's it. That's what she does, and that's what she's capable of, and that takes care of her despair. Mm -hmm. So for me, to watch Glennon grow her community and be the leader of her community, literally $5 at a time, um, it it has been really stunning to watch uh, it grow. And she also puts the money into hands of people who are already in, on the ground doing the work. Mm-hmm. She's not trying to recreate the wheel. You know, there's mm-hmm. a billion organizations. They vet the right ones, and they get the money into the hands of people who are already on the ground, first responders. It's amazing, actually. Oh, thanks, babe. I know, you're awesome. <laughs> um, we are just, we have 18 minutes, and there's so many things I want to talk about. Um, I think I think I want to go to something that might seem unexpected in this room because obviously we could talk about 
women, but I think one thing you've been talking about recently is um, raising a boy in mm. this world. Mm-hmm. And I do think for so many of us, this realization you know, has come, that it doesn't get better for women if, if, if men, we don't make better men. Mm-hmm. Um, and that certain girls, certain kinds of girls, the girls we're raising in this room, they're getting a lot of support. I mean, not all girls. Um, but you, would you tell the shower story? Oh, yeah. <laughs> you guys, so I went into my, cause my, when my daughter steals my shampoo all the time, because I buy her cheap shampoo and I have nice shampoo. <laughs> so, so she steals it, we have this war going on back and forth with the showers. So I went to her shower one day and she shares with my son and my other daughter. And I went to her shower and there, the girl, my girl's stuff is lined up on one side of the shower, my boy's stuff is lined up on the other. So, of course, my girls' bottles of shampoo and are all pink and purple and slender and tall. I look over at my sons, and they're all red, white, and blue, and patriotic, and very thick and big. And I thought, this is interesting right away, you know? So I pick up one of my son's body wash. And you guys, I swear to you, it said this. Three times stronger than any other um, soap. This will no, body slam. Um, Feminine, disgust, like it was just word after word after militant, dangerous, yeah. violent word till I was like, oh God, like are we preparing for war or cleaning ourselves, right? <laughs> so I, I pick up, and then I pick up the girl's bottle and it's just like wispy words that are all disconnected from each other, like elegant, light, um, delicate, breezy, like just like random things, I guess we're supposed to be, but like don't make any sentences or sense. And I just thought, oh, this is so interesting. And then I thought, oh, we, before our kids even get out of the shower, we are already telling them um, how to lose most of their humanity and fit themselves into these little categories of masculinity or femininity, right? Before we even, they even get out of the shower. And it made me think, like, just something about seeing that on my boys' bottles. You know, I was, I, you know, became bulimic when I was 10 years old. I've been fighting toxic messages of toxic femininity my entire life. And so when I had these little girls, you know, the second they were born, I was holding them just like, you can be anything, you know, be angry, go ahead, yell, rage, like, I love your anger, you know, whatever. Like, just trying to raise these fierce girls. Um... And it hit me like, I haven't been whispering that stuff to my little boy. I haven't been saying to him, you, you can be other things than angry. You can be vulnerable. Like, you can cry. You can be soft. You can be gentle. You know, I think, oh, God, like, of course, he's been learning just as many dehumanizing messages about what it means to be a boy in this world as my girls have. Right? And we wonder why our little boys, you know, that they, it is just as dangerous to tell um, a little boy that he can only be angry as it is to tell a little girl that she can never be angry. Right? And we wonder why, you know, every message we send to our boys is that in order to be a real man, you have to, you know, be really rich and you have to be famous and you have to conquer women um, and you have to be utterly invulnerable. And then we wonder why our men can only talk about sports and news and weather and nothing else, right? The poor guys, I mean, we talk about it a lot. Like, it must be so lonely to be a man. Mm-hmm. And right still, now. right, it's shocking that this is still, that there's still all these messages. And you've kind of walked into parenting a boy. Instant mom. It's been fun. <laughs> it's, yeah, instant mom. Instant mom. It's been fun. But has that been a revelation for you? Because you kind of walked into the middle of a boy's life, and he's a teenager, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. and it's different. You know, when I first met Chase, he was uh, 13, maybe going on 14. Girls were a little bit younger, 12 and um, 8, maybe 11 and, and 8 years old. And I think that because he was a little bit older, a little bit more baked in terms of his uh, maturity, mm-hmm. um, you kind of have to process with a boy differently on some level. Um, he wants to stay a little bit more to himself. Um, you know, he's studying more for school. But we talk a ton about how we don't want him to feel um, dehumanized or living among, you know, a bunch of women. So, you know, there's times where 
this is a truth. Sometimes I found, when I first got into the family, I found that Glennon was more apt to push the girls to do some of the house chores. Can't believe you're saying this. We're gonna have so many talks. <laughs> and, I, yeah. and I would be like, yeah. why don't we, why doesn't Chase have to do the dishes? And she's yeah. like, you know what? I think you're right. So we've come down. We're like, Chase, you need to do the dishes. Mm -hmm. Even though you have homework to do, even like you have to do what has been quote unquote, mm -hmm. historically a, f a feminine job, a, a role of a, of a woman in the house. Um, we want to make sure that, that that's an equal shared chore for, for Chase so that he doesn't feel left out. Um, I was yeah, stunned. I like that reframing. Stunned at myself. Is this what, you, what you're talking about when you're talking about unbecoming? It's all these things we internalize that we don't even realize we're still, still in yeah, 2018. We have to like unlearn yeah. all of this stuff. Yeah. And even we, because everybody in this room, we're all poisoned. We've all been drinking from a poisoned well. Um, whether it be about gender roles, whether it be about um, race issues, whether it be about uh, sexuality stuff. There's so many things that, because of our culture and the way we've all been raised differently um, in different parts of the country, we have to actually check ourselves. And, and mm -hmm. you know, no matter what kind of work we're doing, whether it be our own internal sense of racism or our issues with religion and institutions, we have to be really honest and 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 nice to ourselves, like, okay, like, some of this stuff isn't my fault, but it sure as heck my responsibility to figure out some of these answers. That's right, mm -hmm. that's good, babe, good. <laughs> that's when I know I'm doing good, she says I'm doing good. Um, Abby, um, I wonder if you would tell this story uh, that you told when you, I believe, gave the commencement speech at Barnard, is that right? <laughs> um, that when you ret retired, and we never got to talk about what it's like to be retired when you're 38. It's okay. Okay, another, next time. Um, that your sponsor, Gatorade, surprised you at a meeting with the plan for your send-off commercial, and that the message was, forget me, mm -hmm. which made you really happy. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I went in there, and I have wor I've done work with Gatorade for my whole career. Um, I've been a Gatorade athlete at, at the time for... Um, I guess it was 15 years, and they're the kind of company that sticks with athletes. And um, I always loved participating in whatever campaign they had going on and just being a part of the Gatorade family. So when I walked in the offices and they sat me down and they showed me that they were gonna make this, this commercial that was gonna be my commercial, my retirement commercial, well, first of all, I was very like honored. You know, it, it feels like rarefied air to be uh, the, 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 the athlete for a campaign for, for Gatorade. And then the messaging that they wanted to get across to the, to the consumer was this forget me idea. And for me, I know that sounds so bizarre because most athletes are like egomaniacs and crazy you know, into themselves. Um, but I really feel deeply that the legacy I wanted to leave is making sure that I um, am leaving the sport better than I found it. And so often, you know, I hold the record for most goals scored um, for any person on the planet. Um, and of any gender. And, and so people ask me all the time, there's this actually this woman from Canada, Christine Sinclair, that... Yeah, she, um, she will likely break my record within the next 12 months. Um, and don't say anything, Glennon, because okay. she's, she's like, no, I don't want her to break your record. <laughs> but the reality and the truth is, and I really, drew, I, I really do believe this, that especially women, we are here to keep pushing each other. And if somebody breaks my record, that means the game is better. That means the game is growing. That means other people are achieving greater, bigger heights than me. Um, and that is the kind of legacy that I can actually wrap my, my mind around. Mm -hmm. um, you know, in, in 50 years, when I'm old and gray, hopefully less gray than you, Glennon. I love her. <laughs> I love her. Um, I, I, I do hope that all of these records and the landscape looks so different. You know, I talked a lot about that in the Barnard speech. Um, we all need each other. We all have to figure out who we are to un unleash our own wolves inside mm -hmm. of us so that we can unite the collective pack together. 
And I know that I, I spent a lifetime, it seemed, on the national team building not just my own self, my own inner, inner wolf, but the wolf pack is so important. And you can't find success unless you are willing to let it go when mm. it's over. Mm. Nice. And I feel like coming from really different directions, the two of you use this really kindred language. I mean, you talk about champ that we need to champion each other. Yeah. And, and Lennon, you use the language of um, sistering each other. Yeah. Well, sistering is just the best word ever. Okay, so... I love this story. For, okay, so there's these... You know carpentry? It's just boards and nails. Carpentry, right? Jesus is one? Okay. So, <laughs> so there's this thing happens in carpentry, okay, where um, the, 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 main, um, the mainstay of, of building is a joist, okay? A joist is just like a corner, two boards put together. And so every once in a while, the joist starts to weaken because there's a load on top that's too heavy, okay? So when that happens, the little carpenters get on their little CBs or whatever carpenters do, and they say, okay, bring some extra boards. And they put um, an extra board to the right of the weakening joist. And if that doesn't make it strong enough, then they bring another board and they put it to the left of the weakened joist. And with an extra board to the right and an extra board to the left, the joist becomes strong enough to withhold any load. And do you know what that carpentry system is called? Sistering. Sistering. <laughs> I mean, it's like, the guy carpenters were like, oh, we can't name this brothering. That's like too much intimacy. That's so <laughs> <laughs> that looks more like what the ladies would do. But it's like just the most beautiful, to me, example of how women support each other, right? And, and, and for life, because sometimes the load on, our, on us just gets too heavy to carry by ourselves. And the mistake we make when that happens is we think that we've done something wrong. Right? We think we've made a mistake, we've gone wrong somewhere because it can't, be, it, can't, it can't be this heavy, but it's supposed to be that heavy. That's the way life is designed because if it didn't get too heavy for us to carry on our own, then we're so damn stubborn that we would never ask for help, right? And if we never had to ask for help because we couldn't carry the load anymore, then we would miss out on the best part of life, which is just sistering and being sistered, right? Or champion each other. Go get the same, ball, same. score the goal. Yes. Same, same. Yes. Same, same. And, um, and Isla, 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 I, I'm using the language of we need to accompany each other, mm. which is just another, you know, in this universe of words. Where, um, but I think also we need to accompany each other and sister each other and champion each other. But also realizing that it's, that's also tricky when we get for, like saying forget me and is very complex, and you also have a story about coaching the, your 10-year-old daughter's soccer team and somebody asking you, so you retired, what did you retire from? Yeah. <laughs> so, halfway through the season, you guys, halfway so, through the season. So it was halfway through the season, and we were warming up for a game, and um, I was laying off some, some of the soccer balls so they could shoot, and I had just mentioned, like, oh, when I retired, and one of the girls said, oh, what did you retire from? Yeah. And I said, soccer. She said, oh, who did you play for? And I said, I played for the United States of America. <laughs> and she goes, oh, does that mean you know who Alex Morgan is? <laughs> so watch out for what you asked for, because yeah. they forgot me. Yeah. I feel, and I love that, and I feel that this, um, especially in this moment we inhabit, this cross-generational friendship is so important that um, we've given our children a very complicated world, and they don't want to be told what to do, but they want to be accompanied. Mm -hmm. and. And it is also about us relinquishing power we have and the knowledge, like the unbecoming. That's because that's beautiful and hard. Yeah. Yeah, we tell our kids all the time. I mean, I think one of the amazing things about parenting is, you know, you want to teach your kids how to be human among humans. And so it makes you stop and consider how to be a human among humans, right? You have to like stop and think about it for the first time. 
And so one of the challenges I found so much in parenting is the same challenge that I find in my actual life, which is just letting them have their pain, right? Because like you said, you know, these things, we talk about them, but they're hard mm -hmm. and we feel them. Mm -hmm. And um, one of the most important parts of my sobriety and in and activism and why I call activism self-care is just giving myself permission to feel the things, right? And so Abby will tell you, I mean, I feel really, I allow myself to feel a lot, right? <laughs> like I allow feelings to take me to bed for 24 hours quite often. Um, and I think that there, there is some kind of crazy power in that. In my um, commitment to sobriety each day, just being committed to dealing with life on its own terms and my own feelings on its own terms and not rushing myself and distracting myself. And sometimes that means I go down hard. And then there's something that happens after that that's really beautiful 100% of the time. You know, so we say all the time with our kids, like it's, it's just, a, everything's a pattern. It's first the pain, then the waiting, then the rising over and over and over again, right? Mm -hmm. Pain, waiting, rising. Um, and whether, when we skip the pain, we just never get to this rising. And courage is born of that. And courage of is born of into that, that, just surrendering to the process. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, especially being a parent who's raised in the, in the, you know, we got this parenting memo that everything would be okay if we just never let anything bad ever happen to our children ever, right? As long as they gave us the babies and we're like, take her home and just never let being human happen to this child, right? <laughs> don't let anyone ever frown at her. Don't let her lose anything. Don't let a drop of rain fall into her head and then everything will be fine. Our parents got the memo, you know, just take her home and then go drink tab and smoke cigarettes. And have <laughs> like you did throughout the pregnancy. Right, right. Yes. So they got the right. awesome memo and ours <laughs> sucked. Yeah. Um, so... So anyway, that's what I figured out. It took me till my kids were 10 to realize that that parenting memo was complete BS, mm -hmm. right? And the re we, when we don't let our kids fail and we don't let our kids feel, they don't learn how to become human. Mm -hmm. So one of my greatest challenges in my personal life and in my parenting is just to look at my kids and say, I'm not going to protect you from this. I'm going to let you fail here. I'm going to let you feel that. I'm going to let, yes, yes, life is that hard. It is that hard to be human, and I'm not going to grab that from you, right? Like, we talk about, we're trying to raise these kids who don't think they have to be fire avoiders, right? Who don't have to constantly avoid the fires of their lives and of their relationships and of the world because they learn over and over again that they can walk through the fires because they're fireproof, right? That's what we learn when we keep showing up for hard things and we keep making it through, that we don't have to skip the hard things anymore. We somehow always survive and end up stronger. Um, so, yeah. That's just letting the kids have all the hard. I want to ask you, in closing, just each of you, um, um, just for a moment to reflect on um, what makes you despair right now and where you're finding hope. Mm. You want me to go first? Well... <laughs> Sure. I mean, no. I don't go care. ahead. I just didn't know if you're. No, I. I think that what what makes me feel despair is just how lost it feels like parts of our government feel to me, um, and what makes me feel hopeful is that I know that it won't last forever. It's good. Okay. Please, God. It's very I, yeah, I could have asked what you're feeling fearful about and where you're finding courage, given mm -hmm. where we are. How would you? Yeah, well, I mean, I think for me, the despair and the, the hope come in the exact same place, right? Like, I keep hearing all over the place, like, oh, my God, what's going on right now? You know, everybody's suddenly so racist, and everybody's so homophobic, and everybody's so... And, and okay, but, like, everyone's... All, the people have always been like that. <laughs> it's, just, it's just that now we can see it. Yeah. Right? And people are talking about right. it. Right. Now it's at the surface. So like when you ask people who are actually, have been affected by racism their whole life, when you ask people of color, they're not super surprised right now. <laughs> right. 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 They're yeah. like, okay. So thanks everybody. Welcome. You just got to the party. <laughs> yeah. 
right? So, yeah. so that's why I think the despair and the hope are in the exact same place, right? That's why I think like the word apocalypse is so exciting. Yes. It's like, yes. oh, it's the end of the world. Thank you, Jesus, <laughs> right? Like we want it to be the end of this old world where all of this disgusting fear and um, racism and homophobia and Islamophobia and all the phobias and all the have always been simmering under the Did surface. Did you know that the word apocalypse in Greek, and I have this as a gift from a young, fantastic young woman, the Reverend Jen Bailey, um, who happens to be African-American, and she pointed out to remind me that the word apocalypse actually doesn't mean a catastrophe. It means an uncovering. uncovering. Look at you guys. <laughs> that is the moment same, we're same. in. <laughs> It's a hopeful, beautiful thing. Like we, and, and I think about this all the time because we give like destruction, we're too scared of it. We're too scared of apocalypse. Like who wants things to stay the same? Not me. You know, um, you know, we get so scared of the ends of the world. You know, as women, the first, the first story I ever learned about God, okay, and being a woman was, okay, so everything was great and God put you two people in a, uh, in a, in a garden and, um, no, no, first uh, one person in the garden, that was Adam, and then he gave birth to Eve, okay? So we're supposed to take that one on the chin first, right? Okay, all right, so <laughs> men give birth to women, okay? Um, it's not what I've seen in my life, but got it, okay? <laughs> this is like um, biblical fake news, but we're supposed to... <laughs> um, so, you know, don't ask any questions about that, and then, Everything was fine until the woman wanted something and then she went for it and then all hell broke loose and everything was terrible forever. Thank you for joining us. Go in peace. Um, and then we're like, why are women so confused about what they want and food? You know, I don't know. She just wanted an apple. What if she wanted a freaking pizza? Like this is, and um, what I think about over and over again is, you know, what that story does, what every story we learn about being a woman does is make us start to fear what we desire, okay? Women have to fear what we desire. What women want is bad. What women want is scary, which makes us doubt ourselves over and over again. What do we want? We don't know what we want. We don't even know where we want to go to dinner. Who knows? We don't know, okay? But what I find talking to women all over the world is that what women want is really freaking good, right? What women want is justice, and freedom, and peace, and good food, and good sex, and a moment to breathe for God's sake, and connection, and friendship. What women want is really good. But the thing is that what women want is so good that if women started to go for it, power structures would, tum would tumble, right? Because women would not allow babies to starve. Right? And women would not allow for so many wars, and women would not allow for the inequality that plagues us right now. So doesn't it make sense that every single power structure would have to make women doubt what they desire? Mm. Because if women went for the <laughs> what they desired, the world would crumble. That's good. And other worlds based on equality and justice and love and peace would have to be rebuilt in their place. Right? So, what I want women to do is just go for the apple and let it burn. <laughs> Glennon Doyle and Abby Wambach, thank you so much. And thank you thank for you having us. <laughs>